this sounds really obvious, but like I, in working with my students, I've just realized um, how much being a citizen is a part of our identities that we don't talk about, right? And the privileges that come with it. Obviously, it's different based on other parts of our identities, but how we can leverage that instead of feeling guilty, how we can, again, weaponize it or use it. This is Itakai Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton, and that was the voice of Laura Emiko Soltis, Executive Director of Freedom University. This episode is a live recording of the Deeper Learning Den Talk featuring Emiko and Paul Eastless, CEO and founder of Camino Venteuno. The talk was hosted by Nuvia Ruland, so her voice is what you'll hear next. With that, let's get into it. Thank you so much for coming to this Den Talk. We have uh, two guests that, uh, oddly enough, this is the first time that we're meeting in person. We're all meeting in person because over the last year and a half, we have connected online, we have had conversations, we've learned about your organizations, and also finding ways to continue moving uh, deeper learning uh, work together. Uh, so this has been a great opportunity to sit down with um, Paul and Amico in order to learn a little bit more about their organizations, but also kind of dig into your own thinking of um, some of the work and in, in collaborating with one another, but also promoting each other's work. So I will start with Emiko. Um, Emiko is the uh, uh, director of Freedom University out in Atlanta. And I will let you talk about some of the most recent things that your organization are doing and maybe how did you come to the Deeper Learning Conference? Great. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yes, good let's morning. hear it for Emiko. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, my name is Emiko Soltis, and yes, I serve as the executive director of Freedom University. Um, I shy away from the term of ED because it's just a really fancy title from all the things that you really do, which is van driving and um, picking up trash. <laughs> um, and yeah, and making sure everyone stays safe is, is the most important work. Uh, but for those of you who don't know, Freedom University is an underground freedom school for undocumented students in Atlanta, Georgia. And the reason why we exist, uh, which we shouldn't, there shouldn't be underground schools in the 21st century, but we exist because in the state of Georgia, uh, undocumented students are banned from equal access to public universities. And, and these bans in Georgia were passed in 2011, so it's been more than a decade um, of modern segregation in Georgia. And sadly, um, but perhaps not surprisingly, there's only three states in the country that have bans against undocumented students from admission to public universities. Does anyone know those three states? Classroom time, you didn't think it was coming, right? <laughs> it's Georgia, South Carolina, and Alabama. So only in the Deep South do we have states that actually ban undocumented students from admission. Um, and so Freedom University uh, started uh, the year the bans went into place in 2011. Uh, and we are a completely tuition-free school um, that provides college preparation, but also human rights education and empowerment for undocumented youth. Um, and we find and help them um, navigate pathways to uh, welcoming private universities across the country. Um, and so, man, it's been a decade. <laughs> um, and I just want to start off by saying I'm... 
I'm holding a microphone right now, but I'm, I'm not a public speaker, I'm a teacher. And, and I'm a human rights educator, um, first and foremost. Um, and I think it's, I flew in last night, so I apologize, I haven't been a part of a lot of the conversation so far. Um, but I just also wanna acknowledge um, the immense emotional energy it takes to be an educator. Um, And I don't say this to sound defeating in terms of being tired, but it's okay to be tired. <laughs> um, especially, um, I was just telling Paul last night we spoke accidentally for like three hours. <laughs> um, but yeah, surviving four years under a um, very hostile um, presidency. We had an endless election cycle in Georgia. Um, it all ended for everybody in November 2020 and went another three months in Georgia. <laughs> and, and then two years of a global pandemic. Um, and we're still here. Um, so when you ask about current stuff, um, we're surviving and that's, that's a success. Um, and Freedom U is also known not only for our, our tuition-free programs for our students, um, but we're, we say that we're a freedom school and that's intentional. Um, I laugh sometimes because people hear Freedom University and they think we're a far right wing organization because the term freedom has been co-opted in many ways, right? But we choose the term freedom in recognition of the Southern Freedom School tradition. And if you're not familiar, um, during the summer of 1964, Freedom Summer, a lot of folks know about the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and SNCC going down to Mississippi for voter registration drives. But what a lot of folks don't know about the history is that uh, these SNCC activists also started freedom schools with the purpose of educating directly impacted folks and they b believe that education could be for action. Um, but Freedom University, our name also um, was chosen not only to honor the legacy of the Southern Freedom Schools, but because we have the best school acronym of all time too, which of course is FU Georgia, right? <laughs> Um, and the joke never gets old because all of our classes, we, you know, FU math, uh, yeah, FU Spanish literature, and everyone's favorite, which is FU standardized test prep. So um, that's, and I say this because um, oftentimes when I say, you know, Freedom Music School for Undocumented Students, people's faces look concerned, and as they should, recognizing the trauma that undocumented young people experience on a daily basis, what it means to be banned from higher ed what it means for 98,000 high school students who are graduating without DACA from US public schools every year. And a lot of folks, when they think about undocumented students, they don't recognize how geography very much determines pathways to higher ed. And I often feel like I am not only traveling across three hours of time zones when I come to California, but 30 years. <laughs> and while undocumented students can get access to public universities in California and some financial aid, in Georgia, they're banned, right? The conversation isn't even about resource centers. It's like, can we apply, right? And so it's, it's just, it feels like I'm time traveling for all the wrong reasons when I come to California, um, but recognizing, again, the diversity not only of undocumented young folks and all the different countries and regions they come from, but also once they're in the United States, um, depending on what region, will greatly impact their access to higher ed. So uh, that's a little bit <laughs> about the work that we do. Um, and, and I also joke because um, I hope a conversation about joy has been taking place to 
in, in this space, um, but that's a lot of what we've been focusing on over the last year is undocu-joy, as we call it, um, and that being, again, a measure of success as well, and taking care of our mental health, um, both as students and educators. So I'll leave it with that. Thank you so much, Amiko, for being vulnerable, but also, you know, we do have to joke. We have to bring that joy, um, and, and those conversations have certainly been having, uh, we've been having those, but, but um, I, I love the way that you bring it, and as you were talking, it reminded me of Chunky Gonzalez's um, Facundo the Great story, um, and, and one of the jokes in there was, um, what are we going to shorten this student's name to, right, during this like always trying to shorten names of people and not calling Amico by Amico because maybe it doesn't sound right. But in Facundo the Great, Chunky Gonzalez is, uh, really shows how incredible it is when you have a name that is spelled F-U-C-A-N-D-O uh, that you can't shorten that name unless you say fuck. So, um, so Facundo the Great. Um, and it's, it's, it's awesome. So thank you so much for that introduction, but also thank you for um, establishing the need, that, that part of traveling to California and, and the time travel. Like there's sometimes a lot of work still happening here and we're exhausted and we're tired too, but then also we hope we could energize you so that you could go back and um, continue the incredible work that you're doing with all your, your folks. So. Hope this is an energizing conversation for you. Paul is the CEO of Camino 21 uh, from Mexico City. And uh, Paul has an incredible journey, too, of kind of being transnational, having that experience of being an, uh, a student in the United States, going back to Mexico, trying to establish um, different organizations before it became Camino 21 and working with a team of people to, um, you know, really push uh, education in Mexico. So I will let you share a little bit more about your story. Um, what is Camino 21 um, and how did you come to Deeper Learning? Thank you so much, Nuya, and th thank you. Uh, thanks. <laughs> uh, thank you, everyone, for coming here. I know there's a lot of events happening at the same time, so I really appreciate you being here. And I just wanted to begin by thanking High Tech High and all the organizers of um, the Deeper Learning Conference. It has really been very invigorating and exhilarating three days. Uh, a lot of things have been happening, a lot of like uh, learning, which is always a lot of work, right? Sometimes we forget about, yes, how joyful it is, but how much work it takes to, um, to be in these kind of spaces and to really have this very immersive experience. And I am um, deeply honored to be here with Emiko, uh, whose story and work in uh, Freedom University is just um, amazing. Uh, so congratulations. Um, so me, I'm Mexican. Um, I'm from Mexico City and uh, from a um, neighborhood is called Coyoacán. I don't know if you've heard of it. That's where Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera are from. Um, and a couple of years ago, literally in the midst of the pandemic, we began an organization which is called Camino 21. And what we do in Camino 21, um, I don't know how familiar are you with the Latin American context? Um, not that much. Okay, so um, in Latin America, there's many things that I would say are some conversations are way more advanced than here in the States, but here in the States there's always uh, uh, certain 
topics and certain ways to approach education which are in a completely different uh, speed and, and space. And um, so for all of you who don't know, in Mexico and most in Latin America, students that finish a higher education degree, 75% um, of the companies in, in Latin America say that they don't have the necessary skills and competencies to fulfill their positions. So what happens is that in Mexico and in most Latin America, we're very good in terms of content. So for example, if you're a lawyer, you will be very uh, knowledgeable about the law. If you're a physician, you will know how to perform a surgery. Um, if you're an engineer, you'll know how to and what you need to build a building. But what you may not know is how to be a leader, how to be resilient, how to um, have creative thinking or critical thinking, uh, or how to even dialogue with people outside of your field. So those are things that we saw were quite a huge necessity and a need in the Latin American context. So we began by having a conversation with many people in leadership positions and in um, professors in universities about what they were doing. And even though there is um, a ton of amazing organizations focusing on students to help them bridge this gap uh, between their knowledge and skills and what the real world is expecting from them, uh, we saw that there were only like kind of like band-aids on a broken system. So we asked ourselves, what can we do? How can we work with them during that three, four year period that they are actually experiencing um, their degrees, that they're there in school, so that it could uh, help them develop these kind of competencies. And what we did is that, <laughs> something that might not be a shock to any of you, but we decided to help educators and teachers in those positions. Because once that you close the physical doors or that you um, create the, um, how do you say it? Like, um, um, like the, well, well in the digital space, it's always a little bit different, but like when we close our Zoom links, um, that is the space that we are in control of, right? So we are in front of a classroom of our students, and, uh, and that's where we believe that change is most possible and where we could actually enhance these kind of experiences. So we decided to focus on educators. Our colleagues in higher ed uh, come from a very different context than us or everyone who's in the K-12 space because um, all of you are professionals. All of you have done the work, have done the certifications to be in front of a classroom. But most of the folks, especially in Mexico and Latin America, they come from either being professionals or being scholars and they are faced with having to teach. And as you know, that is something that can be very intimidating. And uh, we call it like some sort of a baptism by fire. You're just all of a sudden in front of a group and you have to do something. So what we're trying to do in Camino Intuno um, is to, we developed the methodology that now, um, and thanks to our work here um, yesterday in the deep dive, I know that there's a lot of parallelisms with, um, with the lesson study uh, method. Um, but what we're trying to do is to help educators have and widen their, their pedagogical repertoire so that they can learn there's different ways of teaching. That lecture is just one of many possibilities. And lecture can be amazing, yes. But there are so many other things that we know are more effective in creating learning and not only in enhancing learning, but being very true to this constructivism of the idea of uh, having a dialogue and constructing alongside your um, peers. So. Just in a nutshell, I would say that the work that we're trying to do is for 
educators to first and foremost unlearn what they've done before. So to change their mindset into knowing that even though, and here it's a terrible example of this because like literally the forum is all pointing towards us. But uh, for them to understand that it is not about them, but about our students and about the work that they're doing, about their processes and agency as uh, learners. So um, that's something that we're trying to do. Uh, we're trying to do it in the most efficient way possible. And when I say efficient, it's a horrible word because uh, we were just speaking about this yesterday. It, it reminds me a lot of like um, all the um, loaded terms that in a very capitalist society we're using. But we're trying to be efficient because as we know, teachers are burned out. And we have a ton of things to do. And there is a lot of expectations also as researchers in these institutions. So we're trying to do something that is very um, impactful, but that it is also gonna sort of um, help us communicate with a lot of folks who do not come from a pedagogical background, but who are um, scientists or researchers or that they are lawyers and accountants, right? So it's difficult to have a conversation with them and you have to be very direct in the way that they understand why it is that it is that changing their practice and reflecting about the work that they do. Um, can create better results and better learning outcomes from our students. So that's what we've been doing. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Paul, for bringing us to the work that you are all doing. And, and really, um, I think both of you are, are uh, at different ends of, of uh, the education, right? Really thinking about changing the mindset of educators in Mexico and to be able to uh, support them in, in that process of them being lifelong learners um, and, and continuing the work that uh, maybe they started in a university and sometimes it feels like it pauses as we go into our professional world, but then really invigorating them. And then I'm thinking about also the, the, the identifying a gap that is really um, damaging to our communities um, in Georgia and, and being able to address that with your organization. Um, so I've, and listening to both of you, I've, I'm thinking about um, what are part of those conversations you had last night um, that, that you found maybe bring a little bit of um, collaboration between your organizations or that you're trying to like attack these um, issues in from many different perspectives. Things got a little uh, fiery in a good way. Um, I love fire. <laughs> Anybody uh, that knows me knows I love fire. Indeed. But, Paul, if it's okay that I share, one of my favorite parts of our conversation was talking about, I think where our work does intersect is that uh, we have to think critically about borders, mm -hmm. right? And translating in all of the meanings of that word. Um, and at Freedom U, before I talk about that part of our conversation, I do uh, want to clarify... Um, When we talk about undocumented youth um, or immigration, oftentimes it's devoid of race. Um, but to really clarify that immigrant justice is a racial justice issue and to recognize that the undocumented community is extremely diverse. Um, racially, ethnically, um, their school experiences in their home countries, time of arrival, um, they're just extremely diverse. And, and I don't want people to assume 
that Latinx and undocumented are synonymous. Um, and just on a national level, um, about 80, 85% identify as Latinx. Um, about 14% identify as Asian. Um, and that's the fastest growing part of the undocumented population. And 5% identify as undocu-black. And so recognizing that it is an interracial conversation is critical. Um, and in terms of our d dialogue about uh, borders, we got into a really great conversation about the idea of how rights are acknowledged in the United States versus around the world, and also um, how our work is also grounded in human rights and understanding education within that framework. And specifically, um, by the way, I'm a human rights professor, so rein me in. <laughs> it's hard to talk about this briefly. Uh, uh, I don't want to give a human rights lecture, but very clearly I think it's important that educators understand how our work is a part of a larger human rights dialogue that is global. Um, for those of you who may not be familiar, of course, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, was proclaimed in 1948, and it articulates 30 rights that all people have by virtue of their humanity, not based on their citizenship, not based on where they were born or what borders they cross, but if you are a human being, you have inherent human rights. And one of them, Article 26, is the right to education. This was proclaimed 74 years ago, and it is the basis of international law, but Article 26 states not only that everyone has the right to um, free and accessible uh, primary and secondary school, but that access to ed higher education shall be based on merit. Quote, unquote. <laughs> Access to higher education shall be based on merit. And yet, here we are in Georgia and many parts of the United States where it is based on a social status, right? Whether that was race or now based on citizenship. And I swear I'm going to get to human rights in a second, but that's a, a beautiful part of our conversation is talking about how oftentimes in the U.S. access to education isn't seen as a right because in the United States when we understand rights, we're often only taught about the U.S. Constitution and not about international law or other types of rights. And this is critical because the U.S. Constitution primarily focuses on political and civil rights and not on economic, social, and cultural rights, like the right to education, like the right to healthcare, like the right to housing. And, and in the United States, again, we are constantly expanding the idea of rights and economic and social rights, but oftentimes education is seen as something that you pay for and that it is an entitlement, right? And grounding our work in that all young people have the right to education and the right to higher education based on merit was something that I was really grateful for our conversation and having transnational perspectives. And I just want to make sure that that part of the conversation is a part of this dialogue as well. Yeah, and maybe just building from that and the fact of this being a conversation, not only between you and me and me, because we, I had the privilege of having with you yesterday, but also with the rest of the people here, I know and I see some faces that I've had the amazing opportunity of meeting during this conference, and I'm sure we can all engage in a very um, rich dialogue. Uh, but yeah, as, as you were saying, um, I think that one of the beauties and what I hope to bring to this space is also this perspective of someone who's had the privilege of being here in the States, but also of looking at it as an outsider and of uh, taking some steps back and, 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 and admiring from a distance. Um, but I may just add like um, 
A quick anecdote, before being part of Camino Ventino, I was uh, deputy director in the National Institute for Adult Education in Mexico. And I don't know if you knew, but because there are, and it depends how we count, but around 36 million uh, first, second, and third generation Mexicans in the States, uh, Mexico is one of the very few countries to my knowledge, that, uh, or the only one to my knowledge, that is allowed to, um, to certify a different educational um, um, degrees here in the States, like officially. So Mexico coordinates um, an effort of over, I think right now should be around like 350 schools in the States that we do alongside like the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and local NGOs here in, in the States. A lot of um, works that we're doing are with groups of uh, paisanos who are in this side of the borders, with a lot of churches, with other NGOs that are part of this amazing network which is, was created to ensure the right for education for everyone. So in Mexico, and I think that is something that I'm really proud to say, we do acknowledge human rights as part of our um, law system. Um, so for us, they are equated with the Constitution. So you can always just reach out for, um, for, for human rights and, 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 and that um, mechanisms that allow you to create controversies in constitution, constitutional controversies or to fight for certain rights. So here in the States, um, the Plazas Comunitarias program, which that's the way it's called, so community plazas, um, those are spaces to fight illiteracy and educational land among anyone who wants to, um, to come to these spaces. And a few years ago, so just after the um, election of 2016, um, a, the Mexican government also designed a program that was called Education Without Borders, Educación Sin Fronteras. And that program was designed not only to strengthen the network of plazas comunitarias here in the States, but also to acknowledge the huge difficulties of many of our paisanos that were coming back to Mexico, either because they were being deported or because they were coming back because of the fear uh, of um, the Trump election. So, um, so the reason I'm saying this is because it's something that I want to uplift and to point out the huge struggles that our um, fellow immigrants have in both sides of the border. Because also, and I'm sure the experience has um, been true for many of you who have come back and forth uh, between the border, um, but even in Mexico, sometimes people, when they come back, they're faced with a lot of resistance. Because there's like a different kind of um, situation and, and, and that, that happens with um, Mexicans that are returning to Mexico, because they're seen sometimes as foreigners, because like, why did you leave in the first place, right? Why, did, why are you doing so well there. Like once that you're back here, like your Spanish is, doesn't sound the same as ours anymore. And there's like this huge rift that has happened between our communities. And uh, so what we're trying to do with this Educación Sin Fronteras program was to sort of create a, a, a safer landing and a safer space for people that were coming back after, uh, well, a very traumatic experience and, and the election of Donald Trump. So, um, so all of this to say that I, even though human rights are protected within our constitution and they are um, a guiding factor for all the work that we do, uh, there is still a lot of things to be done in both sides of the border and in particular with any kind of uh, immigrants. We do have a huge problem in our southern border as well. And as you know, we have been... <laughs> 
working as a shield uh, for the American government. Of uh, I, I, I'm very cautious in the way that I want to frame it, but like the word that comes to here is like to protect against like Central Americans, and that's the, not my words, but that is like the the, the policy that has been determined. So um, so there is still a lot of work to be done, even in, though in law these rights are um, recognized. There's the law is just a law, right? We have to make it true and we have to bring it, um, make it alive and make it something that is a reality to all our people in both sides of the border and in just in general with the work that we're always doing to keep that in mind. This is a human right and it's something that should not be considered um, an entitlement. As you Thank you so much. I, both of you made me think still about space and, and, and where we're at. Um, and kind of building off of what you were saying, like kind of this time travel. Um, it's really making me think of um, how, uh, I think it's this year or last year was Gloria Anzandua's um, um, anniversary of her, her book. Um, and, and so I'm thinking of Napatna and, and where, we, where we're standing, right? So um, if you could talk a little bit about that space in between that uh, your students or um, the teachers are, are standing in, and, and maybe some of the conversations that have come up for how to address that space in between for, for you all. Great. So Gloria and Saltua, um, Borderlands La Frontera, uh, is a book that we read at Freedom U, so I'm really glad you brought that up. <laughs> we didn't plan it. Um, <laughs> but one of uh, the many beautiful perspectives shared in her work is this idea of being neither from here nor there, of being on the borderlands, not only geographically, but in identity. And what you were saying too, of people returning to Mexico and, and feeling neither from there or here. And I think in many parts of our, our different identities, we can identify with that. Um, but for our students, um, oftentimes they feel out of place uh, in Georgia public schools or US public schools um, but know that they're culturally, they were raised here, and if they were to go back home, they also know that they would feel kind of a reverse feeling of this as well. And I think what makes Freedom U so critical is it's a space where everyone's undocumented. And it's a space where they can talk about these issues with people who understand, um, where there isn't a sense of fear and this is something I don't talk about publicly that often, um, but as a teacher, I see the impact that, um, also cautious in the language I'm choosing, but having to lie constantly to protect themselves has serious mental health consequences. Um, and I think that it is absolutely tied with being of nowhere in order to survive young people having to constantly lie, even if they're deeply honest people, in order to protect themselves and their families and not knowing who to trust. Um, but I think that that is one of, it's not a part of our curriculum, it's something that happens naturally when students feel safe around one another, where they don't have to make up lies about gap years, why they're not in college or why they can't drive, um, why they don't date because they don't know who to trust. It's, it, it impacts every single facet of their lives. And not to go on a tangent about arts education, but that's why our arts education is so critical. Um, we have a Mexican Son Jorocho ensemble 
um, where part of the tradition is writing their own lyrics <laughs> um, and expressing themselves. And a part of that tradition is like the funnier, like the more bite, the better. And it, to know that that's a part of the curriculum and to be funny and to express some of these things that are difficult otherwise, or in the studio arts class to express this through painting or through dance, um, they can explore that identity in a place where it might not feel safe in the US or in their home countries. I hope that was helpful. Very helpful. So the, the, the things that come into my mind, maybe a, a little bit further south to the border, um, and even the experience that we have in Mexico City, which is kilometers away, right, um, from, um, from, from, from the States. But I am always shocked to see how intertwined our two countries are. Uh, and I know the impact might feel a bit stronger in Mexico because, like, the U.S. is the U.S. Um, but, um, but also here. I mean, like, I, I, I love um, the possibility of understanding that borders are just completely arbitrary systems that we have decided to put a line in the map, and that, that means something, right? When I'm here, there's a lot of Mexicanity or, like, Latinx experience that I hear. But when I'm in Mexico City, I look around, and you have no idea, like, the people who have been in Mexico City might have realized, I have seen it, but like most of our like uh, signs and stuff are also in English, and I understand that there is a component of colonialism and imperialism there, but that, that there is also a reality of two nations that have been interacting and dialoguing with each other throughout time, and that we have sort of um, become very connected in deeper ways that have influenced our cultures uh, in both sides of the border, right? And, and, and I do want to make an emphasis on both sides of the border because that, that is something that is always very exciting to me. Even when I'm here or when I was in Boston, uh, I will turn on the radio or listen to an ad and like one out of every three, four, five were in Spanish, right? And there's always a place that I can go and have a taco. Uh, and I know, like, I heard someone say, like, yeah, you know, like, the most typical Californian food is like a taco, right? Like, you go to a street taco place and, 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 and I mean, <laughs> this is just, like, another expression of how um, connected we are. So um, I think, like, that idea of transnationalism that we have experienced and that have for example, in personal terms, created and, and, and shaped me as a person. Um, like I know, mo like not most, but a lot of the music that I hear is in English. A lot of the literature that I've read are from uh, American or English um, speaking authors. Uh, and there is a lot of connections that I hope we can also leverage and recognize the huge impact of the Latin American culture that has had here in the States also. So I don't know, just to wider this perspective, is not something that happens only at the border, although here and in San Diego in particular, it is more present than ever. We have a very fluid for, and I acknowledge certain people, um, this border is something that just does not exist. In, they live there, but they study here, they um, put their gas, uh, they fill up their tanks in the other side of the border, and they come back. Uh, there are certain health services that are cheaper in both sides of the border. So it's just something that we are completely binational cities, right? We are a community that is just completely, um, yeah, connected and, and, and that we can both uplift the beautiful parts of our cultures. We are all here for, for learning and, and having a learning experience. Um, and one of the aspects of sometimes coming to conferences is that... Um, we gather a lot of 
information, but take very little action once we start going home. Um, so what are some um, action steps that maybe have been at the core for you of just for you, just like things that you are constantly thinking about of like, you know, today I need to just make sure to take this action step in order to uh, move my work forward. And um, I, I asked that question in hopes that maybe some of your own personal action steps are those that resonate with other people and for folks to just kind of think about your own action steps. Um, and, and I shy away from being like, like that yours might be the same for me or somebody else because I think all of us are kind of taking these, these uh, issues from different perspectives. So I hope that gave you enough thinking time. <laughs> but uh, what are some of those action steps that you have been kind of at your core to move your work forward? Yeah, I can go. Um, so, high-tech <laughs> high has been a huge inspiration for me and for the work that we were doing um, because just considering that there is a different possibility of learning that doesn't have to do with um, separating different subjects because we know that life is not divided by disciplines. We just encounter uh, challenges that we are faced with and I would love if they were labeled as math problem or a physics problem or an ethics problem, but they're not, right? They're just situations that we encounter and we, that we have to cope with. And, um, and in Latin America in general, I would say that PBL is still a very new thing. I know it's, it's also here, but like in Mexico, there are literally like two schools that are using PBL. So what we wanted to do with Camino 21 and alongside another organization, which is called Hybrid Education, is that we decided to launch um, a school. A uh, high school that um, has a lot of last names. It is hybrid. It is uh, with a B STEM perspective. So yes, STEM, but with a entrepreneurship kind of approach uh, to it and that was trying to um, resonate with a lot of like young people in Mexico and in Latin America who wish to learn more about these new and upcoming technologies. Um, we are a native PBL school and that we were trying to create in the cloud. So like there's, uh, we've tried and we've put a lot of technology into creating what they call like a next generation learning environment. Uh, sort of to, to leverage the possibilities of that space uh, into what can be done in PBL and to do it in a more, in an accessible way. So what we're trying to do was also by creating this school online was to widen the access for different folks and to lower the cost of like uh, tuition for this university. So, um, well, not university, but like high school. Um, so that's one of the things that we've been doing. I would say like uh, for us, again, like all the work that all of you are doing here and the people who are involved in this deeper learning movement has been transcendental and, and very inspirational. So we're hoping to continue learning from what is happening here and in other spaces and to apply it to a hopefully ever-growing community of uh, people who want and understand that education is way more than just learning what is written in a book, but actually like committing and, and, uh, and acting on those learnings. So, um, so that's part of the things that we've been doing and um, yeah. Thank you so much, Paul. So that, again, that interaction between social economic status and being able to access education and what are some of those obstacles that we try to remove for people to really be able to access high quality uh, education that um, should be 
a, a right for everybody, but you know, it's we, we got to work towards that, right? So, um, so thank you for sharing about lowering the costs of education, or hopefully, maybe also eliminating it. Yeah. Working towards that. Yes. Action steps. <laughs> There's so many ways to answer that. Um, I'll just try and be um, vulnerable and honest based on what I've learned um, as a light-skinned US citizen who's taught only undocumented students for nine years. I've learned a shit ton. <laughs> um, and that's not bragging, just being held accountable on a daily basis. Um, and I know we have a diversity of experiences um, in this space too, and I'm not making any, any assumptions, just speaking from myself, um, but action steps, both internal and external, but deeply in terms of educating ourselves. Um, can I recommend a couple books, just for fun? <laughs> um, People are busting out Yay. Um, Undocumented by Aviva Chomsky, Noam Chomsky's daughter, um, She's a white woman, but speaks very honestly about the criminalization of undocumented people. And it's a response to Michelle Alexander's book, A New Jim Crow. And reading those two books in conversation with each other really helped me understand the connections, um, especially across black and undocumented communities. They're not mutually exclusive. But what they do share in common, again, based on both of these women scholars, is how racism plays out without the language of race anymore, but by criminalizing people of color, either through the war on drugs or the criminalization of immigration, and then, criminal, and then discriminating based on that new criminal status, right? So the bans in Georgia, for example, do not ban black, brown, and Asian students from public universities, even though 99.8% of undocumented people are people of color. So they've banned an entire population of young people of color. But with DACA, for example, they can drive with their driver's license to their low-wage job with their temporary work permit, but be denied access to higher education and the right to vote. The US is constantly recreating populations of exploitable people, and we need to understand how these communities are connected. Not the same, just connected, right? And, and that's been a lot of my learning over the last 10 years, and I just encourage other educators to be aware of these things, and that's our internal work and uh, honestly, our own education. Um, but in terms of action steps to, again, what I've learned from my students is identifying yourself. I, I don't do this less at Freedom U because everyone's undocumented and they know who I am, um, but if you are working in a space um, where there are likely undocumented students who don't know who to go to as a safe person. And, and so United We Dream um, Immigrants Rising have a lot of great resources too for educators of sometimes symbols, oftentimes the monarch butterflies symbol or saying I'm an ally for undocumented youth. It just identifies to them so they can come to you they know who's a safe person to talk to. Oftentimes, again, hearing from my students and their experience in high school, they didn't know who to trust, right? So oftentimes teachers are like, why don't they come to me? They don't know that you are a safe person. And I think there's more education of how to support LGBTQ youth, and some of it translates well into supporting undocumented youth. Let them identify themselves. 
right? That you are never the person to out them, but that you are a safe person that they can come to. And it's okay if you don't know how to support them, and that's what I tell educators often. Um, obviously, hopefully as all teachers, we know not to, uh, it, that it's okay to say when you don't know. <laughs> and especially if a student comes to you and you don't know your state's policies that well on private or public universities, it's okay, say, I don't know, but I will be here with you and we can figure it out together. From what I've heard from my students, that can be like the most, it's just a source of relief. I'm here with somebody that I can trust and they're here to help me. Um, and then lastly, to other citizens in this space, um, this sounds really obvious, but like I, in working with my students, I've just realized um, how much being a citizen is a part of our identities that we don't talk about, right? And the privileges that come with it. Obviously it's different based on other parts of our identities. Um, but how we can leverage that instead of feeling guilty, how we can, again, weaponize it or use it. And for me, that's meant driving. <laughs> also, recognizing with my light skin, my interactions with police are very different. How can I weaponize that, right? When I'm driving a car, police think I'm cute. I never get tickets, right? It, it's one of the, f again, not a lot of benefits of being a small woman of color in lots of ways in terms of decent, <laughs> equitable pay. But in my interactions uh, with police, I have a huge, huge privilege, right? So how do we weaponize that? For citizens with light skin, drive. Drive undocumented people as much as you can. Make yourself available to a lot of community organizations that are looking for that. Um, and then also, again, depending on your, all of your different um, levels of privilege, just having these difficult conversations. Um, and normalizing it in the people that you're around um, is so critical for undocumented folks. Um, obviously not using the term illegal, which again, on the idea of criminality, criminalizing the entire person's identity, right? And being really critical whenever you hear that word, right? It is a lacking of certain documents. That is what undocumented means. And that term may change based on what people wanna be called, but it is way more accurate than, again, falling into this idea of criminality and calling people illegal. Obviously, no human being is illegal. And those are some of the things I've learned and I hope that can be helpful as educators. Hopefully some action steps in addition to all of the legislative things that we can do, but really as teachers, I hope that's insightful in some way. Thank you so much. Um, I, I think that um, in listening to both of you, um, I'm, one, just profoundly, grateful for the work the the book that you've recommended because um you know just the curiosity of like man i wish we had more time to ask more questions but just like makes me think about those pieces of like sometimes it feels like we're trying to learn how to serve and protect many of the humans that we work with um from our lgtp um q um i folks to our folks that are undocumented to um, folks that are constantly um, racially being profiled. Um, and, and sometimes it feels like, what, now I have to learn this, or maybe I have to learn this, or have to learn this, but they're all intertwined. And I think that message came through, that they're all intertwined. So when we're doing the work for one group, we're really doing the work uh, for many, but stay curious in order to expand our vocabulary and, and be able to like learn more. And so um, I, I appreciate 
um, the, those messages of action steps. Um, we have a few minutes, and I know that there's some folks that were like, I didn't know you were going to be here. I'm so excited that you're here. Um, so if there are any questions from the audience and uh, for the folks that are uh, up there um, and want to give us a shout of maybe a question, um, just shout it out. And um, just, uh, yeah, any questions? Um, like, I'm really curious now to learn more about international human rights. Like, it's definitely a gap in my understanding. So thank you. Thank you for bringing that. Questions? Thank you, Summer. Hello. My name is Summer. So hard to talk through a mask, sorry. <laughs> Um, and I'm just curious about, again, your own personal journeys and what was like maybe one pivotal part of your life, your lives that really just disrupted your thinking and helped propel you forward in the roles that you play today? So there's one thing that comes into my mind. So the work that we're, we're doing in INEA, which is the National Institute for Education, is to fight illiteracy in Mexico, right? So one of the things that I had to do in the position as deputy director was to find funding for to open a new plazas comunitarias also in Mexico. So we did a program with um, the Japanese embassy in Chiapas, which is a, a state in the southern border. It's, a, it's one of the poorest states in Mexico, and, um, and I remember when we went there and we opened the plaza, we talked with some of the learners that were in that space, and there was a, a person, an 80-year-old man, um, who approached us and said, like, hi, my name is Chucho, and, um, and Chucho said that he didn't know how to read or write, and that he was there to start, well, learning. Um, fast forward to a year later, when we came back uh, to see how the plaza was doing, and when we encounter him again, he approached to us and said, like, hey, hi, Chucho, how are you? And said, like, oh, no, 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 I'm no longer Chucho. I'm Don Jesus now. Uh, and it was something so, I like, I literally get chills because it was a very powerful thing to see that this 80-year-old man had transformed the way that he understood himself from being Chucho, which is like short for Jesus, to becoming a Don Jesus because he had now acquired the beauty of having this ability to learn to read and write. Um, and it was a completely transformational experience for me to see that in eight year time, someone who had lived his entire life being or perceiving himself as less or like in an infantilized kind of position to becoming someone who has now uh, the agency and the um, courage to continue um, or, or to live his life in a completely different perspective and, and from a completely different way. So that was definitely one of the many things that um, consolidated my wish to understand education to continue advancing the work that we are all doing. That was a really great question. Um, and I'm trying really hard to answer honestly. Um, I think the last couple of years has given me more time, just a different headspace to think and reflect in a way that I haven't before. Um, but I think as teachers, it's really important to think about how we learned um, and who taught us. 
And, um, and I kind of, I like to call it kind of our genealogy of knowledge, right? That there's family, there's chosen family, there's also our teacher family. <laughs> and uh, I just want to acknowledge I'm a public school kid, um, and Kaylee and I uh, grew up in the same town together, and I had a really, really, really great public school education, um, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, but I, I say that I may have gotten my degrees from the University of Georgia or Emory, but actually got my political education from farm workers in South Florida. And for me to really honestly answer your question, that is when things, my thinking was disrupted in the best possible way. Um, I don't want to go into a Forrest Gump life story, but really briefly, I do want to acknowledge where I did get my education. And in, it's, there's a group called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, the CIW, um, based in South Florida, and they're primarily Mexican, Guat Guatemalan, and Mayan, and Haitian farm workers. Um, and in that space, beyond their advocacy for um, fair pay and an end to modern-day slavery, there's been nine cases of slavery prosecuted in Florida since 1997, involving more than 1,200 farm workers. Yes, that advocacy is incredible, their transnational activism, but how they taught one another in an interracial space where people spoke different languages and where people were illiterate. As an aspiring teacher, I learned everything. <laughs> um, think about all of those challenges for a second. You're in a classroom where everyone speaks a different language, where people, you can't give them pamphlets to read. How do we educate and understand one another? And they often did this through popular education techniques. A lot came out of Haiti and the pro-democracy movement and teaching. Teachers were also called animators, right? How do we open up? How we, do we engage in dialogue? And so that's when I was introduced more to Paulo Freire and the work of popular education. Um, and that grounding that, and Freedom U is kind of a hybrid. Yes, we're preparing students for college, but we're also in a, in a very interracial space at Freedom U. All of our faculty, our students, and, and to me, that's become normal. <laughs> um, I, and also, I'm in, from a biracial family, being in a space where every person in my family looks different, we have different faiths, that's, I feel comfortable in that space, um, but I had never been in a place like this farmworker community with all those challenges of education, but how are you able to establish dialogue um, and the ability to see ourselves in one another. And that is really what inspired, I think, the trajectory of my life after that point. Um, and in Immokalee in Florida, I ended up on Sundays taking care of the, the kids. That was my job. <laughs> During the women's meeting, I just took care of kids on Sundays, ages one through 18. Um, and, and after that work, I ended up going to Freedom U where I take care of kids on Thank Saturdays so and Sundays, um, and it, it was incredible. actually a really beautiful transition. Uh, any other questions before we um, start to wrap up? My knowledge, but mostly my commitment. Christian, was that a... Was that a <laughs> Hi. It didn't seem like a yo, what's up? It was a yo, what's up? It was like a, a, a two thing here. But hello, I'm Christian Martinez. I was one of the keynote speakers here. I come from DP Stokeland. Um, and I think both of your stories really impacted me, what you are talking. I'm just over here. Yes, yes. Uh, I grew up undocumented. 
until the age of 25. And as you transition to being an educator, um, what are some of the maybe COVID mechanisms that you use as an educator just to kind of take a break from it? Because a lot of times you are in the trenches in the face of like doing it all the time that you also kind of forget to take care of yourself. So I'm struggling with finding this balance as a person of color, as a person who lives in a marginalized community. How do you find this balance? And I know that's a long question, but yeah, that's where I'm at. What is the balance that you use? Thank you so much. And, and I think it, you know, we, we kind of started, right, with, and I, that was a point where I was curious of, like, that mental health component when you talk about what folks are experiencing when, when they're called illegal, when they're, like, identified. But I think those parts stay as our identity, right? So, like, um, how, do, how do we, like, continue to heal from those wounds from so long and do the work with folks, right? It's like, I still have to do that work, but now para el hermanito, la hermanita, our, our tias and tios and, and abuelitos, abuelitas. So, so um, great question. How do we stay balanced or maybe how do you stay balanced in supporting folks? My honest answer is I don't. <laughs> and I'm really working on it. I mean, I'm, I'm just being real. I mean, my eyes teared up when you said that. Um, because it's not just people at Freedom U, but like all teachers, especially if you're directly impacted in, in this case, um, you don't stop thinking about it at five o'clock. And And especially because oftentimes if you are a person that students trust, they come to you for lots of other things. So lots of calls during police stops, during domestic violence issues, or their dog got hit, can I go to a vet and be safe there, right? Like everything you can possibly think of in a beautiful way based on trust, students come to me. But drawing healthy boundaries is, I, I haven't figured it out yet. Um, Freedom U meets on Saturdays and Sundays, so imagine what it's like to try and take weekends. They don't exist. <laughs> I try and take Fridays off, but everyone's still coming to me on Fridays. Um, and so I'm, I'm learning. Every January 1st, I'm like, this is the year. <laughs> and it always goes up in flames by January 3rd. Um, but I'm trying really, really hard. I'm being honest, this is apparently resonating, but I haven't figured it out. Something that has really helped though, um, especially after a year and a half on Zoom, <laughs> has been the in-person arts classes. Like right now we have a music class and we have art class. And not to say art is therapy, it's so many other things, but it's hard to really worry about tons of shit when like you are thinking about chord changes or like coloring things. Like there's a true therapeutic component of it. Um, and I think what's helped me obviously, not obviously, Therapy is really important for lots of reasons. I'm a huge advocate of talking to someone who has no personal stake <laughs> in what you're talking about. But something that I've learned is just, I'm also, we know this as teachers, as students are watching us. And something about the way it was recently framed to me is like, Emiko, you are also modeling, and especially to young women, what it looks like to not have any boundaries. You are enabling this. <laughs> 
right? And you are actually harming the people that you're trying to teach and to model. And I was like, ugh. Something about that finally struck me. I was like, I, when I take breaks, I'm giving them permission to take breaks. And sadly, it was through telling me about my example and thinking about others that allowed me to take better care of myself. I don't know if that just made any sense. But Lots I realized, okay. <laughs> but I realized, like, oh, I'm being a terrible role model by working 24-7. And that's what helped me. Again, I haven't figured it out, but those are things that I'm thinking about right now. Lots of snaps, lady. There are chorus of snaps. Um, thank you so much um, for being honest. Paul? It's always a challenge to follow after you, Emiko, because everything that you said just resonated a lot with, uh, well, everything that we are experiencing. I would just maybe add... Um, two ideas, right? One is that I have to acknowledge that I am a workaholic and that is not okay. But I try to compensate that by providing spaces for the staff and, uh, um, and the people working with us to create those uh, opportunities that I have not created for myself. So I'm very intentional about respecting uh, like uh, working hours, not reaching out after that, even if I continue doing the work, uh, like not going into the weekends, like uh, like being very intentional about creating as much um, vacations as possible. And it's something absurd, but I don't know if you knew, but in Mexico, we're one of, like, we are the country from the OCDE with the least amount of uh, vacations per year. So legally, you're entitled to four days of vacations a year in Mexico, which is insane. I know it's crazy. There are some, like, um, long weekends, some, but like it's insane the amount of work that we do and it's just completely unproductive. So if I have the opportunity to um, promote something different and to really create and the space for them to have like um, a mental a time away from work and the, the things that we do, by all means I, I try. So, um, so yeah, I don't know, that's something that we do. And the other thing I would say like as an educator, um, uh, and I know this is something that I'm preaching to the choir and that many people will share, right? But just taking the time to ask your students how they are. At the beginning of every single lesson that you do, it is just not something that will take time away from um, the, the work that we do and that, that the knowledge that we want to construct together, but that it is fundamental, right? So putting that in as a central axis of all the work that we do and taking it seriously and really trying to construct communities of learning, and, and the word communities is more, I would make a larger em emphasis than in learning. But I know learning is important, but like the part of communities is just so much more, uh, especially in nowadays and even in online spaces, right? We have to be intentional in creating and promoting the capital spaces so that we can all, um, I don't know, try to promote a bit more of um, social emotional learning and do go to therapy. I go to therapy. It's been amazing. Uh, uh, yeah. Yes, if there's anything, let's take care of our brain health. Taking care of our brain health includes those walks, includes that nourishment, includes those wonderful connections and community that really fills us. And then there's also that component of finding that professional too. So I appreciate that you have both brought that up. Um, sadly, we're out of time this afternoon or morning, sorry. But one thing that I want to just kind of point out, right before we started, both of them were saying, I'm, I'm kind of not used to picking up the mic. And so I am 
just really grateful that both of you were able to pause the work and, and I'm sure there's a team of folks that are holding the fort and things are not going to fully fall apart. Maybe something might fall through the cracks, but it's going to be okay. And, um, but you paused and you came here and you picked up the microphone this morning to share the work that you're doing, your, your story, your, your, your community story. And I am absolutely grateful to each of you for having traveled so far to be here with us today. Um, this is being recorded, so we'll be able to share this with lots of people um, and be able to continue um, connecting you all to folks, um, uh, hopefully, that are curious about the work that you're doing or maybe needs the services that you're providing for people. So thank you for being at Deeper Learning 2022. Let's hear it for Emiko and Paul. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Hi Unboxed is hosted and edited by me, Alec Pass. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. Huge thanks to Nuvia Ruland, Laura Amico Soltis, and Paul Islas for this Den Talk. You can find links to Freedom University, Camino 21, and the Deeper Learning Conference in the show notes. Thanks for listening.